Hey everybody, it's Mike Rickheim. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Madiv's Getting to Know Podcast. Today I'm joined by the Sultan of Supply Chain, new guy-ish, kind of newish guy, Andrew Downard, Canada's finest, coming to us from Alpharetta today. Andrew, thanks for taking time out of your busy supply chain transformation schedule to join us here on the Getting to Know Podcast. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks. I think you might be the first native Canadian ever on Madiv's Getting to Know podcast. Do you think of yourself first as a Canadian supply chain leader or are you just a supply chain leader? Well, I, you know, being Canadian is definitely part of my identity. Uh, a lot of Canadians define themselves by the fact that we are not American. Um, so, you know, we tend to carry that with us wherever we go. And uh, I feel like I should speak up for our Renfrew facility here, which I'm very excited about visiting, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll try and represent the Canadian side of Madiv very well in this conversation. Could you be more Canadian than having our Canadian business produce hockey tape? I know, right? I, uh, I grew up playing hockey at, like every Canadian kid does. And, uh, you know, the, the way it works is you, you play every day after school and then you go Saturday morning to the frozen rink, just, just like the cliche. Uh, and then you get home and you take off your hockey stuff and you go out and you play in the alley. That's just what you do. It's, it's hockey, hockey, hockey. And I bet I saw the Renfrew hockey tape logo on those cores 60,000 times growing up. Uh, I didn't realize until I got to the company that that was one of our products. So I'm, uh, I'm, thrilled about about that and excited to go see the the people in Renfrew and tell them in person thank you for all those childhood memories. Well we'll come back more on a personal front we'll come back and talk more about the great country of Canada I'm sure here in a bit but let's start with your professional background and how you got to Madiv. Talk, talk to us a little bit about how you got here and what your your early days have told you. Yeah, sure. So uh, to take a, a brief trip through my resume, I actually started life as a chemist. Uh, so that's what my educational background is in. And my first job was at a chemical company. So uh, doing what you would expect as a graduate of chemistry, mixing chemicals together, stirring and making new products. But I very quickly learned that that, that wasn't the hard part of, of chemistry in the real world. Uh, you had to scale up those products, you had to make them, you had to ship them, do all those things. And so I, I quickly fell into operational excellence where we were trying to get impurity levels down and yields up and those kinds of things. Um, led me into operational excellence, a lot of statistical experimentation, that kind of stuff. And then as I started to get through that, moved into the manufacturing realm, and then once after had got through that for a few years, we needed to ship this stuff and that led me to supply chain. Um, so I just started to take on projects in these areas, not because I had a, an independent interest per se, but because that was the next step in the chain. And One thing led to another and I looked back after a couple of years and discovered I had become a supply chain guy. But it was a it was a nice fit for me, you know, a lot of new stuff, a lot of, uh, you know, the, the math and science type, type stuff that I like. And one of the projects that I was asked to do by a company, you know, a couple of years into that career path was implementing demand planning. Uh, this was, again, at a chemical producer. And this was back when no one had ever heard of demand planning. So it was a really cool thing to go out and research that discipline, talk to some of the, the people who were in the process of inventing it, and bring it into the company. So that was my first big foray into, into supply chain and, and had, had a chance to, to do that kind of work at some medical service companies, at some consumer goods companies, at some food companies. 
and really just work bigger and bigger projects in, in supply chain. Um, I had a, a chance to lead a, a supply chain organization for the first time at Newell Brands. Um, you and I share that heritage, Mike. Um, so I had a, had a big supply chain job there and, and, and it was a lot of fun and had some sourcing jobs there as well. And so I ended up, you know, a few years into my career with a reasonably well-rounded base in supply chain. The opportunity at Madiv is just super exciting to me. Um, you know, a new company coming together, a lot of building to do, a lot of teams to, to create and optimize. And that's the kind of work that I really like doing. Um, I'm not an expert in every discipline of supply chain. There's so many parts to supply chain, it's hard to be good at them all. But I think we've got a really good group of people here who have expertise in the industry and expertise in a lot of areas in supply chain. And, and that's a really exciting place to be as we, we put this together and start to grow as a company. So you officially joined Madiv shortly after we became Madiv, right? Right right after, was it US Labor Day? Uh, yeah, that's right. So I'm just about five months in uh, as of today. So you mentioned not having expertise in every part of supply chain, which I would think would be damn near impossible given how broad that is. Are there elements of the Madiv supply chain that get you more excited because of the opportunity than, than others? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, supply chain has been in the news a lot over the past few years for, for obvious reasons, I think. One of the advantages we have is a, a fairly uh, widespread set of production assets. And that means we have pretty short supply chains compared to a lot of the companies around us. That's allowed us to weather the storm over the last few years a lot better than a lot of companies, frankly. And it's positioned us well for the future. I, I'm not sure we did it on purpose. Um, you know, if you, if you wind back the clock five years, it probably wouldn't have been the, the way you would design a company. But um, it's funny how these things work because the circumstances we find ourselves in now, having a lot of facilities in a lot of places allows us to be closer to our customers and have fairly short supply chains. And in an environment where supply disruptions are common, that turns out to be a huge competitive advantage. In a merger of equals, I think it's just natural. You're going to hear about synergies all the time. We hear about synergies all the time. The extent to which us hearing about synergies all the time stresses you out, given the fact that procurement is a huge part of the driver of the synergy delivery plan. I wouldn't say stresses me out. I mean, it, it's a big number we're going after, but uh, it doesn't stress me out because the synergies are actually there. Uh, you know, it's a matter of disciplined execution to go out and get them. To back up for a second, we, we use this word synergy. In the procurement world, mostly what we're talking about is cost savings. So, you know, so sometimes I do get asked, what do you mean when you say synergy? That's, that's generally what we're talking about. And the, the classic way you get that in a merger situation is, is that you're procuring, you know, $100,000 worth of something from one company and $100,000 worth of the same thing at the other company. And so you can put those two pieces of spend together and you've now got $200,000 worth of spend and you should be able to get a better price. Higher volume leads to a better price. And there is, in fact, a lot of that kind of opportunity. But even bigger than that is just the relationships we've got with these suppliers. So it might not be exactly the same thing, but some of our big chemical suppliers, some of our big pulp suppliers, even our energy suppliers, going out to them now in a cohesive way, even if we're not buying exactly the same thing, 
building bigger relationships as a bigger company allows us to have suppliers who truly are partners. We're big enough to be interesting to them and become partners with them. And over time, that leads to these reductions in price, can lead to better, better payment terms, all sorts of ways we can drive synergies. But the opportunities really are there. And so you know, the, the opportunity to go out and, in a disciplined way, execute on all those opportunities and deliver, I mean, that has its own kind of stress, but it's not the kind of stress of saying, oh my goodness, where are we going to find these? How are we going to get them? It really is uh, you know, an opportunity-rich environment. and It's just a matter of executing to go get it. Is it as opportunity-rich as you expected it would be, hoped it would be? Where, where does it play out there? I would say hoped it would be. Um, I think the the people who are putting the deal thesis together, which is before my time, of course, but uh, they did a pretty good job of sizing the opportunity. Now we're finding a little bit of difference in the details. You know, we might have thought there was a little bit over here and there's less, and we didn't think there was so much over here and there's more. So we're finding some of those differences. But generally speaking, I think the thesis was sound, and it, it falls to us to just go off and, and execute and make sure we get that. And uh, that, that work so far has, has been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to see the teams come together internally across those old barriers, and it's been a lot of fun to see the results start to roll in. To the layperson like myself, you, you mentioned that kind of thought process around $500,000 of spend here, $500,000 of spend here. Clearly, there's a formula. You put it together, and you go get cost savings. How real is that? Like, as you look across the real opportunity, is that a small portion of what you guys are really going to do, or is it pretty material? I know it's pretty material. And, and like I said, it's not always just taking the same same spend from different places and putting it together. Um, two of our big suppliers, as an example, are, are Huntsman and Lubrizol, uh, big chemical companies. And we had, uh, before the merger, we had several different buys with these companies. Uh, so um, if you add up all the pieces, it turns out to be a significant amount. But that's not how we were approaching the companies. We were approaching them kind of one buy at a time. So one factory or one, one plant or one business unit might be spending you know, $100,000 with them. And then we're spending 500000 over here and a million over here. And we never put that together. And neither do either of these companies. So we had a chance you know, at the end of last year to put all of that together for the first time and, and go out to, you know, again, to use the example, Lubrizol and Huntsman and say, Look at the full breadth of our relationship, all of these things that we were buying. And, and that's not a view they had ever taken before and not a view we had ever taken before. And it just puts us on a completely different footing than they viewed us before. And, and that allows us to have a different relationship and, yes, drive a different level of, of price because we're, we're viewed as a big fish and we, uh, you know, we get the rewards that come along with that. What attracted you most when you looked at this opportunity? Like what, what, what got you here? I love this kind of building work. You know, I, I've, I've told lots of people, I've told you, people probably heard, heard me use the line. I, I didn't know anything about these businesses before I got into Madiv. I'd never, you know, literally never heard the name of the company before, uh, before I got the call about the job here. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'd love to say I'm passionate about our products, but, but that's actually not what got here. Um, I will say since I've got here, um, you know, being a chemist, it's, it's super interesting. But, but what got me here is the opportunity of doing the work to build process, first of all. We've got a lot of work to do in that space, and that's work that I'm passionate about and love doing. And then to build the teams. Uh, to take different teams coming together from different business units, from different geographies, from different companies, and put that together and, and look out over time and say, how are we going to transform ourselves 
into a global organization that performs really, really well. That's the kind of work that really, really excites me. And, and that more than anything is what got me in the door here. You talked about building the team, Andrew, and for the listening audience, as, as you noted, we've, we've worked together before in the past. And what stands out to me as I reflect on the Andrew Downard I knew from yesteryear was your passion and commitment and the efforts you put in around everything related to people, development, talent management, succession planning, really scaling up the capabilities in your organization. Clearly, that's been a passion since early in your career when, when, when I knew you. Um, what drives that? Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, you're a chemist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. doesn't have much to do with, with chemistry. I'll fall back on a quotation that I really like. Um, it's, it's from William Blake, who was an English guy in the 1800s. And the quotation is, great things happen when men and mountains meet. And first of all, let me apologize for the gendered language. It was 1810 when he said it, so it should be when, when people and mountains meet. But I think that's such an exciting and interesting idea that you need two ingredients for great things to happen. You need a person who is energized and passionate and interested in doing something. And then you need the right challenge to find them. And when you put those two ingredients together in, in the right way, you can not only change the business, not only change a person, you can actually change the world around you. You can invent brand new stuff that's going to outlive us all. And I just think that's such a, an interesting and exciting idea. And I don't know, at some point early in my career, I started to see this happening, both for myself, but, but particularly creating the conditions where that can happen for others. And I just, I found that so personally gratifying and so exciting. And I just, I want to create that feeling for the organization, for myself, for the people involved over and over and over again. So that, that really drives me finding those opportunities, articulating in the right way, and then matching them up with the right person who's really excited about them. Great things happen when people in mountains meet. Well, I had a chance to see you and your leaders in action here very recently, and you've done a great job of trading that energy across the supply chain leadership in the organization, so I give you a lot of credit for that. Clearly, the challenge exists, as we've touched on briefly. Where do you feel like we are from a capability standpoint? Like, How ready are we, as energetic as we may be, how ready are we to go get this done? Yeah, well, I think we're doing the right things is the way I would put it. Speed is always going to be a question. And, and I, I, you know, it's, it's good that we're a group of people who want to move quickly. But there, there's two things that we need to be mindful of as we do that, I think. Um, one is that this is human beings we're talking about. And, and we all need to take time to, to learn and to adapt to new situations and to get good at new things. And the other thing is, particularly in supply chain, there's just a lot of really, really detailed work to do. Um, things involving data, things involving documentation. And, and that's not a, a value judgment. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just a reality of where we are as a company. We're coming together. We're new. We're young. And so there's a lot of that kind of work to do. So in the one sense, I feel like we have a great team. We have the right group of individuals who are motivated to go after it. I think we've got great leadership. I think we've got a great vision. All of those pieces are in place. You've heard me use this phrase a couple of times now. We need to be disciplined about the execution. And, and that's where I think supply chain can lead the way and have a strong role to play is in doing all of that under the hood type work to make sure that the foundation is in place and we can execute on those opportunities going forward. I don't know if they have magic wands in, in Canada, Andrew, but if you had one and you could wave it over the organization, what would you use that for today? 
Yeah, well, it's a it's a, it's a good offer. Um, you know, if I truly did have a magic wand, I, I, I think the, the answer might be a little bit different than you think. What, what I would do if I had a magic wand is, is for the period of, let's say, four weeks, I would bring us all, everyone in the company, all of our facilities, all of our distribution centers, I would bring us all within the same square mile, put us down, and let us interact physically together for a month. You know, I think we're doing a great job of leveraging technology and communicating as, as best we can. But the fact of the matter is, we're still getting to know one another. And there's always pockets of knowledge around the organization. I, I think it would be, you know, again, the magic wand experiment. It would be very cool if we could all just get together for a month. If we could go to see each other's facilities, if we could get ourselves together in a room. I think that would be a tremendous accelerator for us. And then, you know, wave the magic wand again at the end of that uh, that uh, that month long time and go go back to where we are because I like that supply chain as I mentioned earlier, but I, I think that would be a huge accelerator for us and, uh, and and a lot of fun at the same time. What was most energizing and or do you anticipate being most accelerating, if you will, coming out of your recent time together with your leaders? Yeah, I, that's a I can answer that question clearly. Uh, we have these new positions in the organization called business process owners. And what those people are doing is looking out across the business units, across the region, at a particular kind of work. Uh, so um, as an example, we've got people looking at supply chain analytics. We've got people looking at production planning. We've got people looking at transportation. And it's, it's exciting because we've never looked at those things at a company level before. It's always been site by site or business by business. Um, so there's tremendous potential just in looking at it that way. But also the people that we've asked to do it are generally people who are very, very good in that space, but often their scope has been very small up until this point. And so we found some of those people who bring a lot of energy, a lot of knowledge, a lot of passion to their subject area, and we said to them, gosh, you've had such tremendous success in this scope that you're working in. How about just blowing up that scope? How about making it the world? And bring what you have done in your local space and bring all of that benefit and all of that energy to the world. And it's been just really, really exciting to watch those people step up on that much bigger stage and take what they know how to do and make it much, much bigger. So we've got five areas that we've identified that we're, we're driving that business process owner work. We actually came up with a sixth uh, in our meeting this uh, last week. And I just think that's a, such a tremendous harnessing of the energy that we've got to do great, great things for this company. And you feel good about our ability to tackle five, now six areas without watering things down? Is it what, like, what, what could we do if a seventh showed its face? Could we go after a seventh or is... 10 too many? Yeah, I, I don't know what, you know, five was my initial answer. I got talked into a sixth uh, last week. Clearly, there's many areas we could do this in, um, and, and we will over time. We tried to pick the, the five initially, now six, that were kind of most fundamental and that would uh, set us up for future success. But I think the approach is highly scalable. And, uh, you know, some companies who, who get quite mature at this process stuff end up having very big business process owner organizations. I don't think we're there yet. We need to prove out the model and get some uh, points on the board. But yeah, I, I think it scales up over time and uh, we can use the approach in a lot of different places. Andrew, by the time this airs, you're probably getting close to your half year mark. What would you say you're most proud of at that stage or at this stage? The organizational changes that we've made um, in the first, I'll call it three months that I got here, 
we made a lot of organizational changes in a hurry. Uh, so I arrived towards the end of September. Uh, we, we talked with teams globally and decided what we wanted to do. And we announced most of that stuff right at the end of 2022, a little bit into 2023. And we're in the, the process now of executing on probably well over 100 individual transition plans where we're saying to people, okay, you used to do this set of work. Now you're going to a new set of work. We need to manage that transition times, say, 100, 125, 150, something like that. So it's early days, but there's already a lot of successes and a lot of energy around those transitions. I think in another you know, six to eight weeks, when people are listening to this, we're going to be well into that and people into their new responsibilities will have new capabilities as a company and be able to deliver in a new and accelerated way. So if we could pull that off in the next six to eight weeks, and I think indications are very good that we will, um, that will certainly be a, a proud moment for both me and the team. All right, let's transition a little more personally. So how did you get to what I believe is actually Atlanta or the greater Atlanta area? You're now based here in Alpharetta. Talk us through how you came this far south. Yeah, so it was uh, not directly, I'll put it that way. So I, uh, I grew up in Calgary, which um, is just at the foot of the Rocky Mountains in Canada, uh, so in the western part of the country. And um, Spent my formative years there and, and did my most of my schooling there and eventually ran into um, a professor, an English professor I had seen at uh, you know, a number of, of academic conferences that I had been at. And he, he had been bugging me, you know, come, come and work for me. And he, he, was, he played the eccentric professor role to the hilt. I just want you to have the right uh, image when you, you, you think about the story. He had you know, hair going everywhere and big mutton chops and uh, you know, really thrived on this uh, eccentric professor uh, personality. Anyway, he kept asking me, well, why don't you come work for me? Why don't you do that? And at the time, I was like, well, there's, there's a lot of reasons why I, I, I wouldn't do that. You know, moving halfway around the world, what am I going to do financially? What am I going to work on? Where is it is all going to lead? And he was the, one of the first people in my life to just, just challenge every one of those things and say, well, why don't you do it? What's stopping you? And over time, he taught me that nothing was stopping me. And all of those limitations that I thought existed were, were in my head. So eventually, through caution to the wind, moved to Belfast, Northern Ireland to work for him and, you know, landed and had a suitcase in my hand and really knew nothing else and, and, and you know, got to work for him. And he kept asking me that question, why not? What is it going to take? sent me to lots of places around the world, introduced me to colleagues from just about every country on earth, it, it seemed like, really opened my eyes up to what, uh, what the bigger world looked like. So it was a, a cool and a really formative experience. Um, I left that research group and went into industry, started uh, working just south of Toronto, actually close to Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. That's where I was doing that, uh, you know, kind of OPEX and manufacturing type work. Eventually got a call from uh, Newell Brands that we talked about before to come and, and do some of the some of uh, similar kind of work there. Now at that point they said, well, why don't you just come down to the U.S. and uh, and, and live here? And and I said I'd, I'd be happy to do that. But this is a well-known story in Canada where that offer is made, but it's it's actually much more difficult to get from Canada into the U.S. So we agreed I would do that. It took about four years to uh, to make that transition happen with all the the requirements and the paperwork. We loved Atlanta. My wife and I did. We did really from the first time we went there. It's, it's a city that I think has a lot of personality and uh, we really liked it from the first moment. So there's no hesitation, just needed to get through the, the visa process. Um, so we, we came to Atlanta um, in 2008 and uh, have been here ever since and it's been uh, really, really good for us. Where did your wife get involved in this story? 
Yeah, so we met uh, we met at university. Uh, we're both chemists by training. You know, it was uh, your classic late night in the lab. Uh, the Bunsen burners are turned high and the lights are low. You know how that goes, right? Yeah. So yeah, everyone yeah, knows that. Right. A little bit like that. No, but uh, Christine's great. She's um, a chemist by training. She's still uh, a practicing chemist to some extent. She works for a company called Element Solutions, um, which strangely enough. Our circles overlap a little bit. So she's in the print industry. Um, she was telling me shortly after I uh, after I started at Madev that she got a call from a salesperson at Madev trying to, to sell her some of our products and services. I told her she should buy some. But uh, she, she works in continuous improvement, new product development, those kinds of things. She started her career at uh, Xerox uh, in the research organization at Xerox, which was a, a really uh, big deal at the time. Uh, still, still is to some extent. Xerox has a very famous R&D group. And... Um, uh, when the call came to move to the U.S., we knew she was going to have to lose uh, to leave her job, and uh, it's one of those moments when uh, you realize that your wife really, really loves you if she's going to leave a career like that to to come with you. But uh, she found uh, another great career here, and uh, like I said, we've loved it in Atlanta. That's great. What do you guys do for fun when you're not doing like chemistry, supply chain types of things? <laughs> yeah, well, we uh, we have similar jobs in a lot of ways. So she's on the road a bit, uh, just like I am, and, and long hours. So sometimes it feels like ships passing in the night. But um, we do like to travel together whenever we get a chance. Um, so that's uh, something we do. Um, we also like to cook. We both like to cook, which um, I should say is not... Uh, not exactly compatible with our lifestyle. Uh, we, we both like making recipes from scratch, um, so it's not too unusual that we'll both both get home. Uh, you know, it's seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. We'll start on a recipe. Uh, eating at you know ten or ten thirty is not not unusual for us on those nights. So that's one of the things we like to do together. You talked about being out on the road. I'd like to run a quick commercial on behalf of your LinkedIn profile. I've had several people say to me, like, "Wow, Andrew does like such an amazing job." On LinkedIn. And to me, knowing you, I thought, yeah, that's Andrew's LinkedIn profile is very Andrew. But I come to find out this is new. You haven't been out there on LinkedIn like this, right? Yeah, that's true. I, uh, you know, really before coming to Madiv, I had, uh, you know, I had a profile like most people do, but I, I'd never really done anything with it. And I probably posted on average once a year before getting here. But I, I guess a, a couple of things. One is the company was new. Right, and so there's a chance to fill that empty vessel that is the Matter brand, and, and so th I thought that was interesting. And then I also thought it, it might be interesting for people to kind of see a new company and a new experience through my eyes. Now, to what end? I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I had no uh, no uh, destination in mind when I started doing this, but really, from from the first time I posted, I, I was floored by the response, both internally and externally. You know, a lot of people come up to me in the hallways and and, and chat with me about it. And and that's that's great for me as, as an introvert to have that you know kind of accelerator and conversation starter, and then in my wider network outside the company, um, it's just led to a, a lot of interest in what the company is and what we're doing and the journey we're going on, and you know that's helped us pull a little bit of talent into the company and do those kinds of things. So, you know, it's 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 a hobby for me at this point. Uh, I've been really pleased with the reaction to it, and it allows me to to share my enthusiasm about the company, um, where it's all leading. I'm not sure, but uh, so so far, it's been a lot of fun to do that. That's great. For those of you in the listening audience, if you haven't checked it out, check out Andrew's LinkedIn profile. He does a really great job of kind of capturing what he's seeing and where he's been. And and um, I don't know, are you doing this like while you wait for dinner at 1030 while like the potatoes are, are steaming or what? 
often the post is as I'm taxiing down the runway after visiting somewhere. That's probably my most uh, my, my most common posting scenario. That or, you know, when I've just arrived home. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I try and capture the moment, you know, when the excitement is happening. And, and, and every time I post something, I think, oh, gosh, you know, wh- where's the next one going to come from? I have no ideas. But it seems like you know, it's, it, it never takes more than about 24 or 48 hours for something really cool and exciting to happen that I, I want to share with everyone. So that hasn't been an issue so far. I got to tell you, Andrew, to your credit, you've always struck me as someone who just embraces the uh, just the growth trajectory, just recognizes that this is a journey for all of us and we're going to keep growing. And hopefully, uh, usually that's in the right direction. And every now and then we take steps back. What would you point out as the area of professional growth that you've had over the last, you know, three, four, five years that you're most proud of? Yeah, we talked a little bit about speed earlier. And I think, you know, I'm on this journey to continue to embrace the idea of speed. The, the underlying assumption here, or the underlying observation I've had about my own life, and, and by the way, this is both personally and professionally, is that when I think about the things I regret, when I look back on what I view as mistakes, Almost always, those are due to situations where I have failed to make a decision or I've made a decision too slowly. I can look back and and point to 50 examples of that in my life. Very rarely can I point back at something that I regret where I moved too fast. And I've had this realization for a while, but I think it's only in the last few years as as a professional that... I've, I feel like I've had the courage to start acting on that and really trusting myself and pushing the people around me to just move with speed that most of the time we're going to be right. And even when we're wrong, it's recoverable. And, and I've been, you know, personally, I find that very exciting to, to have an underlying philosophy. And, and I found that most of the time that philosophy holds true that uh, we, we are capable of making the right decision, capable of taking action sooner than we think. And the consequences, if we get it wrong, are generally not that high. So that's um, that's an area that I've been trying to challenge myself and challenge the people around me. And I've been gratified to see that the business results tend to come faster as well as we've done that. That's great. Do you, do you have a hypothesis as to whether that's more nature or nurture or, you know, is it some kind of chicken egg type of thing? The reason I ask is we've got a very technical workforce. Our, our population is such that it wouldn't be tough to jump to a conclusion that they might be a little more deliberate because they're a little more technical and there's a process for things. What, what's your view? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as we start talking about bigger companies and bigger groups, we underestimate what we actually know collectively. There's this idea of wisdom of the crowds. This might be a phrase you've heard. Do you know the, the origin of that phrase, Mike? I do not. So, This goes back to like late 1800s, or sorry, late 1700s, early 1800s. And the the phrase comes from these fairs that they used to have in England. And one of the features of these fairs is you could pay a small amount of money, a penny or a farthing or whatever they were paying with at that point. And it offered you an opportunity to guess the weight of a cow. 
so you paid your money, you got a piece of paper, you wrote down how much you thought this cow weighed, a few hundred people did this, they all submitted their guesses, whoever was closest got to take home the cow, which was a, a big deal at the time. Um, so you know these fairs traveled around and they did this in every city. And they kept records. And uh, about 10 years after all this was happening, this guy, uh, an English statistician, uh, Francis Galton was his name, came along and he got hold of all that data and he looked back at it and he found, first of all, what you would expect to find, that most individual guesses were pretty far off. But then he looked at the average of all the guesses. So if, you know, if 200 people were guessing the weight of the cow, they're all individually going to be wrong. But the average turned out to be very, very close. And it, he, he left good notes on this. So we know exactly how he was feeling as he went through. And he looked at the first couple and he's like, well, this, this must be a coincidence that this happened on the first two. And then he looked at more and more and more and more. And he realized that this was a real thing, that the crowd collectively could guess with great precision what this cow weighed, even though none of them were experts in estimating the weight of a cow. And I just think this is such a powerful and interesting idea that collectively we know more than we think we know. And yes, you might be wrong about something, I might be wrong about something, but somewhere in our crowd we have that knowledge. And if we come together, if we apply it together, then we're going to be right. And we can have some confidence about being right. Now, we're not guessing the weight of cows, of course, we're doing other things. But I found that the, the general phenomenon holds that together we know an awful lot. And we ought to be confident about that. We ought to use that as a basis to move with speed. It's very powerful. And I will tell you, um, not a topic I thought we would cover today on the Getting to Know podcast. <laughs> um, advice to your younger self, Andrew. Worry less. You know, I, I uh, like many people, I think I started out with the notion that my career would be linear. Uh, that there would be a, you know, there was a magic sequence of roles that uh, was necessary to get where I wanted to go. And uh, that frustrated me for a while early in my career, my inability to, to take what I thought was the correct sequence of actions. Advice I give myself and I still regularly give people around me, I'm not sure how much they appreciate it, but I, I give it to them anyway, is that you know, the best thing we can do in our lives and careers is just, just be open to the opportunities that are happening around us. Um, you know, I, I once had a, a mentor who described it to me as, you, you've got a long corridor in front of you, and off those corridor are many, many, many doors, and some of them will be closed and some of them will be open. And you just have to be opportunistic. You have to be willing to walk through open doors when it's the right time in your life to do that. Um, you're not always in control of which one's open and which one's closed, but you are in definite control of whether you walk through. And uh, I found just being open, um, you know, it's not going to be a linear path. You might know exactly, you might not know exactly where things are going to lead, but that idea has been powerful for me. Um, since I've learned to embrace that, I think, um, you know, again, personally and professionally, it's been helpful. And also, I just find myself a lot less stressed than I was early in my career. Good for you. From a leadership standpoint, does it piss you off when you don't see people doing that? <laughs> I wouldn't say piss me off. Um, I, I think it's a faster way to get where you want to go. You do have to surrender control to a certain extent. I do think people sometimes get a little hung up on what they think they should be doing uh, versus the opportunity available. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I try not to, to judge other people in general, so it's not a good or a bad thing. But I do think it can be a definite accelerator career-wise if you're open to doing a bunch of different things, even if it's not obvious how that's going to get you, uh, you know, to quote the next step. Very good advice. Very good advice. 
Andrew, at the end of every Getting to Know podcast, we ask our guests three specific questions. I'm going to hit you with those now. The very first of those is what is always in your family refrigerator, particularly interested given the uh, the late night cooking that goes on there in the Downard house? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so our, our fridge neatly divides into, uh, there's there's two-thirds ingredients, and those go up on the weekend. I do all the grocery shopping in the house, by the way, so go grocery shopping, buy all the recipe ingredients, and fill the fridge, and then that declines over the week, and it's just about empty on, on Friday. But the other third is fully taken up by beverages, and mostly non-alcoholic, although alcoholic has been known to happen on occasion. But my wife and I are both firm believers that a, a strong foundation for life is having an excellent selection of non-caffeinated, low-sugar drinks available in our fridge at all times. So there's usually, no joke, 12 to 15 options available with, uh, you know, five or six of each because we, we do not want to be caught without exactly the right drink for the moment. So what kind of brands and types of drinks are we talking about here? Yeah, well, uh, so if you're in Atlanta, uh, you got to talk Fresca. Fresca's uh, an important foundation of our drink ecosystem. Now, as a Canadian... Before I moved to Atlanta, I thought there was just one variety of Fresca. For those of you out in the world who might still be living in that uh, delusion, <laughs> when you get to Atlanta, there's multiple varieties of Fresca. So we're always uh, on the hunt for those. But then, you know, multiple iced teas, and uh, we like to buy drinks, the fruity ones. Uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty omnivorous when it comes to those things. All right, Andrew, second question. Amongst those who know you well, what would you say you're most famous for? Yeah, I think... Um, I'm a planner, and I like to be organized, and, and that uh, I like to think that's mostly a good thing. I'm, I'm aware that it can spill over into a bad thing, and uh, you know I think if you talk to the people around me, they would tell you that uh, they've seen both sides of that. I, I do tend to be organized. I do tend to be proactive about planning, um, but also you know my team, I'm sure, would tell you if uh, if the day comes when I think I need something and it isn't already there, I can be pretty relentless about follow-up just so I can cross it off my list. It may or may not be important in the, in the, the wider world. But uh, um, so I, I, I think, uh, you know, sort of being organized and planning, the, the good and the bad aspects of that is uh, one thing I'm known for. Great. All right, last question for you, Andrew. What would you say you're most looking forward to right this very moment? Yeah, so I already mentioned the visit to Renfrew. That's definitely going to happen, and I'm, I'm excited about that. But, but more generally, I think we have a lot of the basics to cover over the next, I don't know, six to 12 months, something like that. Uh, sometimes I call it eating your broccoli. And uh, we got a lot of broccoli to eat over the next year or so. And uh, I like that kind of work, I truly do. But I think once we get past that, once we've got the foundation laid, our processes are where they need to be, our teams are locked in, then there's a really exciting phase that comes after that, where we're starting to make investment decisions, we're starting to put technology in place, we're starting to decide what do we want to be known as, both as Madiv, but also for us as a supply chain community. What do we want to get really, really good at, better than the people around us? There's no reason we can't be state-of-the-art. There's no reason we can't be world-class in some of these areas. So have to lay the foundation, have to do that work, have to eat a lot of broccoli. But past that, I think there's a really exciting opportunity for us to just you know, put ourselves on rocket fuel in a few areas and uh, become known for something. I can't disagree with your desire to get through the broccoli eating phase. So uh, totally with you. We have a lot of synergies to deliver. So we're going to get you out of here, Andrew. But thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to spend with us on the Getting to Know podcast. 
All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. For those of you in the listening audience, hope you enjoyed getting to know Andrew. Check him out on LinkedIn. Follow him. It's a good follow. You'll learn a lot about the organization through his eyes. And we'll talk to you again in two more weeks.